0: This podcast is brought to you by Exergo Technologies, providing some of the most affordable and portable sports science technology on the market. Made by
1: coaches for coaches.
0: Stop guessing. Start assessing.
1: Produced from the Cube Studios, this is Strong by Science. In-depth conversations about science-based training, sports performance, and all things health and wellness. Here's your host, Max Schmarzo.
0: What's up, guys? Quick answer to a question I got, and again, this is kind of an opinionated question, so I guess it's an opinionated answer. Uh, the question is, where do I begin when it comes to trying to understand and uh, kind of dive into research? And so I think what this is coming from is there's a lot of stuff that you can start with, um, and people are like, wondering well, "Where do I begin? What's the best place for me? Where? What book should I read?" Uh, is there one book out there that you think is the the best place to kind of be the launch pad? Are there certain research papers I should begin with? And my answer to you is uh, it's pretty simple. Read what you like to read. Right? If you don't like the topic that you're trying to learn about, then you're not going to get much out of it. Really go with a topic that is going to be something that you enjoy reading about, something that you feel like you can dive deeper into, because that's going to lead down the rabbit hole of uh, information from there. And so what happens typically, you might get a topic like, oh, you know, I want to learn about muscular power or I want to learn about, you know, how to, uh, you know, jump higher, whatever the topic is. And you might find a paper um, where it's like, oh, the, these are the uh, some, you know, literature review or um, a meta-analysis or uh, some sort of research paper, a book on power development. And in that, they're going to have specific studies cited there's going be specific aspects of that paper that you don't understand. So you might be reading about power development and you don't understand what a uh, rate of force development is. So then you start reading about rate of force development. Then you read about, okay, there's early versus late stage rate of force development. Then you read about what aspects go into early versus late stage rate of force development and how there's neural aspects. And you might dive into the nervous system. And, heck, you might dive into nutrition and um, specific aspects related to uh, you know, nutrition for power development. But the whole kind of concept is you got to make sure you start. That's the biggest issue. People get here and they go, oh, you know, where's the best place to start? The best place to start is to start. Period, right? It doesn't matter where you start, but you got to keep doing it over and over again. You got to dive into it, try and understand it. If you find topics you like, you know, continue to read into those. Be biased with you what you're reading. Read articles and topics that you find enjoy. You know, things you find enjoyable. Um, find books that are easy to read. Don't try and read the hardest book first. Read a book that you're actually gonna finish. And then from there, you dive into deeper and deeper aspects of it. But people, when I go, oh, what's the best, what's the, you know, when I hear the word what's the best route or what's the best book to read, it's kind of like, oh, which is the book that has all the answers? <laughs> and there is no book with all the answers. And that's regardless, you know, that's any topic at all We are talking about in life. And so when, when it comes to starting something, just start it. Find a topic you like, read, learn. Um, analyze synthesize practice apply reflect on it then read within that paper itself maybe there are certain papers that you want to read within that paper what papers were cited in that research paper that you might think are interesting go to the references and just skim through some of the titles of these papers and you can be uh, you know picky about this you can find topics that oh that looks like an interesting topic that I want to read about that paper doesn't look as interesting until maybe one day you need to find something that one day you know that paper didn't look so interesting but now because you're on that topic it looks a lot more interesting and so when I tell people and talk to people about this it's not about you know the best place to start it's about the best place to start for you and that's something that you're going to actually do and something you enjoy something that you practice over and over again And so, again, reading is practice, by the way, despite what people think, right? The first time you read might take you about 30 minutes to read one research paper, but as you get better and better and learn more and more and become more comfortable and familiar with the terminology, you don't need to sit there on Google and Google search certain words and try to figure out what they mean. You get better at it. You begin to synthesize the information quicker, and then you can apply it in different domains. And so I really challenge people to just just read, enjoy it. You know, learn about anything you want. People go, oh, you know, Max, what's the best topic or what's the number one book you recommend? I don't care. (laughs) Read a book you like. (laughs) If you like it, you're going to read it. And then if you're going to read it, you're going to learn from it. Um, at the same token of that, I think a lot of times when we read, we look for specific answers i I was the first one I know I did this. I'll be the first one to admit I was reading super training, and I heard about it first from Louis Simmons and West Side Barbell. I spent the whole damn time reading that book, trying to understand how Louis Simmons did conjugate training. Well, long story short, Louis Simmons, the way he describes conjugate training might be a little different than how the Russians did it, but I spent the whole time trying to you know find an answer to the specific question. And then I remember reading the book again about three years later and being like, oh, my gosh, there's so much I missed because I was so busy trying to just find a specific answer um, to a question. But that's okay, right? Maybe it's not the best way to do it because you might miss certain things. But then you might go back to that book because you know it's a great resource for other areas. It gets you diving into certain topics. Um no one likes doing things that aren't fun. They don't you don't want to do something you don't enjoy. And so find something that you think you can complete, something where you can begin and people go, "Oh Max, but what where is that? What book is that?" You know, what what I don't care read a an article, go to T Nation, go to um, men's health, go to some muscle and fitness, go to um you know, bodybuilding. It doesn't matter You start somewhere, just start reading. We all start at different places and you don't need to dive into the one paper that's going to tell you everything. Just dive into something that you're going to find enjoyable and something that you can complete. Um, So that's kind of my quick take. Where to begin? Well, just begin somewhere. Start. Just dive into a topic and you might fall flat on your face a couple of times, but once you find something you can actually enjoy, you'll get something out of it. So uh, it's a fair question. I get it. You know, I'm not going to hold it against anyone. But again, it's it's kind of like, I don't know what's best for you. Do you do what you like and do what you enjoy? And if it happens to be just, you know, an Instagram post is where you start. That's wonderful. And then just build off of it. Every day, build off of that aspect. Find a way to make that bit of information you read about yesterday mean something today and it means something tomorrow. You build and build and build and build and learn from that aspect. And you begin to aggregate all this information so you can begin to synthesize some different areas based on your own context of understanding as opposed to trying to go, and you. know, I need to listen to this one talk or read this one book and it's going to tell me everything. Well, that book is written by someone. That talk is given by someone. So naturally, it's going to have some biases towards it. And so... Again, just try to do your best to expand on what you can, learn what you can, challenge yourself to build your own information, your own, you know, your, your catalog of of opinions and intelligence and references. And from there, you just uh, enjoy the process and, and make sure you like it. If you want to change topics and you're kind of sick of talking, reading about muscular power and you want to read about psychology or you want to read about nutrition or business or, you know, manufacturing, it doesn't matter. Just read about something and have then um, keep the mind, your mind open to understanding. You know, there might be certain things that you get from it. it. might be certain things you don't get from it. But ultimately, it's it's gonna be beneficial. So where should I begin? Well, just begin. Read something. I don't care. Go read my if something I wrote. I don't, I, my I don't care. It might be boring. I apologize for my boring kind of writing, but it might be something that you like, or maybe you want to go read. Um, you know, physics for dummies because you want to read about physics, or you want to read. Just Google search something, when in doubt, just type in the topic you want to learn about and type in research at the end, and you'll get tons of research on it. So that's kind of my bit of advice when it comes, where should I begin? I don't know. It's wherever you want to begin. I appreciate you guys listening, take care, and uh, feel free to shoot me some more messages. What's up guys? I got a quick topic going into, um, it's a question, it's not just from one person, I've received it from quite a bit of people. And in short, the summary of the question is, what is the best exercise for X goal? Um, I think this is a, a simpler question and also a very confusing question at the same time. And so what I mean by that is, first off, from a very reductionist approach, meaning at a very base level, the best exercise for you is always dependent on your goal and whether or not it's helping you achieve the goal. But to give a caveat to that, you really need to understand what your goal is, how you define your goal, how you measure your goal, and how you analyze your progress towards your goal. And so what I mean by that is that when people ask, oh, you know, what's the best exercise for producing lower body power? What's the best exercise to help me jump higher? What's the best exercise to help me run fast. Well, I I don't, first of all, I don't know the best one for you. I'll be lying to you if I sat here and said, this is the best exercise. However, what you can do is pretty simple. How do you define success? Let's use jumping higher as an example. I want to jump higher. Therefore, when my vertical increases, I use that as a form of measurement to measure my progress. I measure my vertical. If my vertical goes up, I know I'm moving closer towards my goal. So the question is, when you look at an exercise, is it transferring? And is it transferring at the rate you want it to? And what is the context to which you expect it to transfer? For example, if someone is using a trap bar deadlift to help improve their vertical jump, well, it's not just trap bar deadlifting will help your vertical jump. It's being very defined, right? It's improving my trap bar strength is going to improve my vertical jump. But again, it's not just strength, it's probably strength to body weight. So improving my trap bar strength to body weight ratio is going to improve my vertical jump. You have a hypothesis now. That's what you think because, Random, we don't know. That's what we assume. And if we take that stance, then we can monitor progress in multiple ways. You can look at A, is your trap bar strength to body weight ratio going up? And then B, Is it transferring to my vertical jump? And if not, why? So this is where you can start to break down and understand how and where certain exercises fit specifically for you. Maybe you say, okay, my trap bar jump height went up. Sorry, I'll take that back. My trap bar to body weight ratio went up. So I got stronger at the same body weight. My vertical jump height did not go up. But if you had a full force velocity profile, maybe you see, oh look, my maximal strength went up, but my speed strength didn't go up. And so maybe it's a speed strength deficiency. And so that is now, we're we're building the framework as I talk through this, is how you begin to analyze what's best for you. You now take a dive deeper and you begin to assess yourself. And you say, okay, my hypothesis originally was getting stronger at the trap bar, You know, the trap bar helped me jump. And then we said, well, that's not enough. getting stronger. You know, a stronger body weight to trap bar ratio is going to help me jump. And then you say, okay, getting a stronger speed – strength uh, to trap our body weight ratio is going to help me jump and so now you've broken it down further and further and further but it allows you to test and understand this hypothesis and measure your progress over time and when you do this you now have the framework to begin learning right you have a building framework because now you expect certain things to happen if they don't happen then you have the ability to act upon it so now when you're measuring progress you want to measure progress over time you want to say okay maybe I don't just want to measure one week and then six weeks from now maybe I want to measure every single week to learn if there's certain deviations in my progress, maybe you made a whole bunch of progress right away and that progress stalled. And so that takes you back to the drawing board a little bit to begin to understand why are certain things going on. This same process is the same process that also works for trying to get, you know, hypertrophy. You're trying to get bigger, trying to put on some more muscle mass. You go, oh, well, what's the best exercise for me? Well, assuming your nutrition's locked in, and that's obviously critically important for hypertrophy, but let's say you want to say, oh, your goal is like, I want a bigger chest, you know, whatever it may be. Cool. How do you define that? Right? It can't just be I want to bench press more. It can't just be I want to do more, you know, flies or something. It's gotta be some quantitative process. Maybe it is the form of um what I call it semi-quantitative, where you're taking a picture, obviously that's subjective but you might have the ability to set up multiple subjective metrics over time to say, okay, I'm making the progress that I wanna make on my physique, right, my aesthetic progress that I care for. So these are the same specific aspects that fit into the framework. And with that, you have pros and cons with it. So if you keep bench pressing, and that's the one exercise that gets your pecs really big, but it messes your shoulder up, well, well, maybe you don't have the capacity to handle that bench press, so you gotta do other exercises involved with it, like rows or maybe external rotation to keep your shoulders healthy. That same context applies, I mean, that same concept now applies to your jumping example, right? I want to jump higher. Okay, I want, you know, trap bar is obviously very important, but well, let's say squ- do squatting. Squatting is a good example. Squatting, you know, for me is really important, but I can only squat as much as my back can handle. So getting my low back stronger gives me the more capacity to train my legs in a greater extent, which allows me to now have better adaptations that will help facilitate jumping. And so when you start breaking this down, it literally begins to build your program for you. Now you say, okay, here's my primary goal. Here's my primary movement. And this allows me to transfer to the exact movement I want to do. So primary movement um, that I think hypothetically, my hypothesis, what I believe is going to uh, transfer greatest over That's what I have. And here are some limiting factors within that movement. This is what's limiting my ability to actually lift more weight. This is limiting my ability to hang on to the bar. My grip might be associated with that. And so finding ways either to get modalities and exercises that don't have those limitations or maybe you actually have to improve some of those quote-unquote limitations to allow for the capacity to actually perform that movement. So now go back to that back squat example. You can only squat as much as your back can handle, but now you get your back stronger. Now you can train your legs to a greater extent than you could before because your back was the weakest link. And now your back is strong enough that you can handle it so your legs are being stressed to the extent that you want them to, just the same way that external rotation all the accessory work to help keep your shoulder healthy because the shoulders let you bench press. When you bench press, you get the aesthetic results that you want to see. And so when you have that framework, that framework of your initial goal, how you define that goal, how you measure that goal, and how you begin to analyze your progress towards that goal, and then... Have some self reflection, we'll start to build out your own program for you. And so when we go, like you're gonna try to make this idea, oh, you know, programs really, um, especially for general fitness, right? The um, we, this kind of idea that you know, training is very confusing and sometimes very nebulous and hard to define. But actually, the more defined you are, the better that program helps fit for you and helps get you know, um, not say so fit for you, but help build itself. And so, having that mindset, you can take that mindset towards multiple goals, will allow you to at least get some skeleton frameworks which you can build your program upon. So, um. I, I, again, this is kind of like, you know, it kind of went deeper than expected, but it's not just like, you know, this is my specific exercise that's going to help me get to X, Y, and Z. But if you have the f- hypothesis framework, a building framework, some sort of design thinking model that allows you now to build your own program based on your specific goals. And it removes a lot of the constraints, right? We talk about constraints. We talk about constraints with people. Think I think what people think about me, so I'm only going to do exercises that other people have done in the past because apparently those are the only ones that work. Or I'm going to do one that I know people won't make fun of me for. I'm only going to do these exercises because I've read it in a book. Well, instead of having that model, we have constraints based on external stimuli or external not stimuli, but external um, entities, things or uh, influences. That's the word I'm looking for that are not founded in the hypothesis that you're building up, are founded in other you know you know thoughts that you have developed. That removes a lot of it, and so now you have that framework. You remove a lot of the constraints, and you start to look at things in a different way. That might be a little more creative and a little more logical than otherwise saying, "Oh, we have to do this exercise. We have to do that exercise. I got to do, you know, this number sets, this memory reps." Now you have the ability to say, "I'm going to do this X, Y, and Z because it fits my hypothesis framework, and it makes sense for my self analysis of my program. And because it fits into there, you don't worry about anything else anybody else is going to think about it because it makes sense according to your own analysis." based on your own needs, based on your own defined goal. So I know that kind of uh, started getting wound up and started going a little quick there, but I think it's really important because that's a great mindset to have, in my opinion. Um, Really appreciate you guys listening. Great question. Take care and uh, continue to tune in these. I'm really uh, excited to keep these going moving forward. All right, thank you, guys. What is the most useful piece of equipment? modality Or anything else in that regards for younger athletes or younger trained athletes so those who haven't been in the weight room that much?
1: Um, I think a wall. I think you get a lot of value just with a nice concrete wall. Well, think about what a wall can do for you. I mean, number one, it can assess. Number two, it can work posture for all your sprinting mechanics. Uh, Number three, uh, you can use it for med balls. So you can use it for power. Um, and so that's what I think immediately, what's the first thing I want to do with my athletes? Well, one, I want to assess them. So I love simple things like a, for instance, a wall squat, like, let's see how deep you can go without your face smacking into the ground or into the wall or, uh, looking at your posture, for instance, uh, your ability to self-organize on a a wall squat, but b like, I like doing a, uh, like a waiter's win- or excuse me, like a windmill and then have them use the wall so they can gain new ranges. Uh, So once again, you use it as an assessment tool. You can use it as a training tool um, for range of motion. Um, Three, you can use it for strength. Uh, Obviously you can do a ton of isometrics against it. It's an immovable force. Um, And then all you need next is a med ball and you can do a lot of throws against it. So, you know, it's something that's simple that you can find at the park, it's just a wall. What's up, guys? In a recent
0: podcast, I had a question that I went over. It was about what is your favorite piece of equipment? And and with that, that topic also is, you know, why is it your favorite? Is it because you enjoy doing it or is it from a utility purpose? And so I think this answer I'm going to give covers both. (laughs) I guess liking it is a that's a term we use loosely in this area. I guess liking it means it does a good job at what it does, but it doesn't mean I always look forward to using it, put it that way. But I find it very useful. And so the piece of equipment that I think is maybe maybe the most underrated piece of equipment out there is the sled. And what I mean by a sled, it's like a, a prowler setup sled, not one that you uh, attach to your with a belt around the waist, one that you're pushing um, so whether you call that a prowler, whether you call it a pushing sled, wh- whatever it is, it's that piece of equipment. And it's the one that typically has the low handles and the high handles on, on it, and you can load it up with weight. And then the reason why is critical. When you're working with individuals that you don't know well, say it's a new client, a new, um, a new person you're training, there's always a risk with loading them due to the fact that you don't know necessarily how their movement patterns are going to look, and you don't know um, how they've handled loads in the past. Does their form break down? Do they, uh, do they struggle one area or the other? And so in that, when you're introducing or teaching, training someone, you might slowly introduce, say, heavier, heavier weighted squats or a deadlift or a trap bar deadlift, which is great because you're able to build up the form and able to see it real time and see how it progresses to make sure that you as a coach feel comfortable in implementing that specific aspect of um, you know, that training intervention. But there's also the aspect of the individual wanting to lift something heavy. They want to feel like they've done something. And with that, the sled is one of the safest pieces of equipment, in my opinion, when it comes to loading something heavy. And what I mean by that is two things. One, there's no eccentric load, right? They're not concerned with them having to lower like a barbell, um, lower a bench press, you know, I guess you're not benching a sled, but lower a barbell in the squat. With the uh, you know concern if their neuromuscular control if their form is going to be okay and whether it gets compromised in a sled it's always concentric right you're pushing forward. Secondly, you could argue well Max you know you can just do a concentric only squat. Well yes but if something goes wrong where the movement pattern breaks down they still have the bar on their back right they have to find a way to get out of that situation. And with a sled if they get out of position you can just stop. Right, and the, the sled's not gonna go anywhere. It's not gonna fall on you. It's not gonna hit you. It's just gonna stop moving. And with that, the sled allows you to implement a whole variety of loads. Um, whether it be very heavy, moderately heavy for many repetitions, in a position that's very dynamic too. It's what I also like about the is the fact it's alternating between closed chain and open chain, right? Your foot's on the ground, you're pushing, but also there's the open chain aspect where you're moving your hips through that range of motion. You're having a marching pattern and it teaches body position. So now you're challenging some postural integrity aspects as well. What position is that individual in and how long are they able to hold that position? With that, obviously, in the sled you can do many different other, you know, many different exercises. You can do poles. You can do, um, you know, like a row version of it. You can do, um, like a push, like a horizontal press with it. So it's obviously huge amounts of utility. But I think using the sled as a lower body means to load, um, kind of it, you know, a, a way to lower, to load. Excuse me, the way to load the lower body in a safe, efficient manner is absolutely excellent. It's. Positionally very favorable for that individual. You can coach them real time. You can adjust them as they're moving it, and it's relatively safe, right? You're not gonna have the issue of loading them very heavily, uh, like a squat, and being concerned if they can get up and down. Now, people go, "Well, Max, are you going to do the, you know, this?" Um, Sled forever. Some people maybe. Some people it's really a good fit for that individual, and based on some body mechanics, you can put them in a position that's not going to bother their knees in a way that maybe a you know a squat might, um, a traditional squat in that way. But at the same time, maybe you use this as a means early on to have some maximal strength stimulus, some or just strength stimulus in general, to accumulate some volume on the lower body, while you introduce and teach other exercises that you might deem more effective at training lower body, but have some consequences in regards to teaching, education, and skill um, adoption, right? So the, how how well they're going to take on that motor pattern. And that allows you then to have this cornerstone movement of the sled to kind of be there as a fail-safe. When in doubt, you can bust it out and use it as the maximal strength while you're teaching other, other patterns. It's almost like a filler, and a filler in a good sense, that you like know, the, the glue that holds the bricks together. It keeps you on track. And so when you're talking about it, it's hugely beneficial because yes, it's uh, it's safe, but it's also really easy to coach, right? The positions they get in are typically positions that are very favorable to how we move in life. You can change how we push it itself, right? You can have more of a heel strike and they're in an upright position that's more hamstring dominant. Maybe you get them in a more leaned position. Maybe you're working a little bit of core stability with that lean and how long can they maintain it for? And so sleds are. My favorite, I guess not really an exercise. I totally labeled this uh, question wrong. It's more my favorite piece of equipment. Um, I guess the exercise I love would be a sled push. So I guess that's the caveat in it. But I think sleds are just critically, um, well, not critically, but easily used, right? They're hugely important in this uh, way to train someone at the same time, right? There's a negotiation process of training where um, Gary Schneider and I were talking about this the other day. Uh, he's the CEO of uh, Train uh, Train Station, the Fit app. We had him on the podcast recently. We're talking about how this negotiation process, and some people want to, you know, they want to push something heavy, they don't lift something heavy. They like certain feels and movements. Well, this is a great thing that you can add in there, still get that stimulus and have it done in a safe, effective manner. And so that's one of my favorite exercises or favorite pieces of equipment. And in that, I mean, I could dive into another topic as well. Maybe we'll save this for another time. But what are my, you know, most important exercises for longevity? What are areas that people are commonly weak and that typically, again, is lower body, but lower that body in dynamic way, and including the posterior chain. Um, and we could talk about that for another time, but we might save that for. Uh, uh, I don't want to dive into that right now. I keep this, you know, little piece uh, effective and short and succinct, and not drag it out. Well, thank you guys for listening, and uh. Tune in next time because I might be talking about you know what are some of my favorite exercises in general for someone or not favorite exercises but favorite um, exercises for problems that we typically see in the weight room. So thank you guys for tuning in, really appreciate it. Hope you're enjoying these. We try to make it a wide variety. And again, uh, if you got questions, feel free to send them my way. Thank you. Take care. In an ice bath, right? We've sh- it's been shown that it can reduce muscle protein synthesis. It also helps you feel a lot better the next day. You have reduction in pain. Um, You have reduction in some of the perception of how you feel. Not reduction, but a positive, better perception of how you feel. We've also seen mixed results in regards to HRV. So to take one more step back, and I apologize for this, before we do any recovery modality, the perception of the recovery modality itself plays a role. If someone hates an ice bath, then no matter... How much benefit it might do physiologically for them? If they get afraid of it, they get nervous of it, they don't like, uh, they don't anticipate it, then maybe your perception makes it a reality. And that ice bath, despite having some physiological potential benefits, is overrun by the psychological perception of it, saying, you know, no matter what happens to this mentally, I'm not going to be okay taking an ice bath. What's up, guys? How we doing? Today, I'm talking a little bit about training interference and how that plays a role in concurrent training. So first off, training interference is the idea that if we have two different training stimuli that are theoretically opposing each other, then we might not get the most out of our training that we possibly can, if not actually reduce our adaptations as a whole. And so what I mean by that, an example would be doing maximal power work with long, slow aerobic training. Maybe it's also doing um, maximal strength work with long, slow aerobic training, typically two opposing stimuli. The idea is that it inter- that's concurrent. So if you're doing both at once, that's considered concurrent training. And the idea of interference is that those opposing stimuli are not letting the adaptations come into fruition and not letting them be the most optimal that they could be. This is a tough, tough topic because, um, first off, I want to point out a cool study. I just posted this study on my Instagram page. is was looking at highly trained hockey players and they put, they had two groups, um, both groups trained for maximal strength in the back squat. One group did long, slow, steady state cardio between 40 and 80% of their VO2 max, and the other group did high-intensity interval training. What they showed was both groups had equal adaptation to strength gains, but only the high-intensity interval training group actually had benefits for their overall aerobic capacity, so their VO2 max of that group increased. The interesting takeaway from that is two things. One, regardless if it was aerobic or high-intensity interval training, both groups had similar adaptations, and if we were to think about interference, we would make the assumption that the cardio training group, long, slow, would have interference with the maximal squat because those are two very opposing stimuli as compared to the high-intensity interval training, which theoretically might augment, you know, possibly facilitate adaptation for the maximal strength because it is similar in nature. That both type 2 fibers are being recruited. Now, you can get into the um, intricacies of that type of training. You can debate whether or not, um, you know, is HIT actually gonna facilitate strength? And I get it. Fair argument. But in this case, we're kind of looking at the idea of two, you know, a complementary stimulus for conditioning versus a non complementary stimulus. So, complementary being the HIT, non complementary being the long and slow. So, interesting takeaway one both groups had. Um, adaptations to strength gains and maximal strength. Interesting takeaway number two was the HIT group was the only group that had improvements in their VO2, so their aerobic capacity. What's an interesting aspect of that is that we're dealing with highly trained individuals, individuals that have probably been playing hockey their entire life. How much are we actually going to get out of them from an aerobic-based standpoint, doing long, slow, steady-state training for a group of athletes that are that well-trained? And so it's not just that, you know, aerobic training didn't, you know, didn't reduce strength gains, but also the high intensity was the only one to actually increase aerobic gains because those athletes are probably so well trained that aerobic low intensity training did nothing for their aerobic system at all. It wasn't even a stimulus to stress it for adaptation. Secondly, I guess that's not second, that's third now I want to talk about is that when we look at interference of training, probably... Does exist, And what I mean by that, don't look at it from the terms of what kind of stress to adaptation can you have. In an optimal world, you only have one stimulus that's very specific, very directed, and you begin to have adaptations due to that specific adaptation, sorry, due to that specific stimulus that's going to help build that, um, you know, the desired goal. So if you want to get really big, uh, hypertrophy, well, only doing hypertrophy with adequate nutrition is probably going to be the best way to get hypertrophy gains. However, if we had the situation um, where it's a real-world situation for an athlete where you can't just do one stimulus, where only hypertrophy, only, um, you know only hypertrophy and only eating enough food but we have hypertrophy and maybe some condition as well because this person likes to actually play their sport outside of here whether it's in training or not well it's the ability of the system to handle the total amount of stressors in the body and having to adapt to it so what is the total metabolic stress on the body and my belief because if you look at some of the original interference studies um if they believe it's in uh George R. Brooks' exercise physiology textbook, kind of the gold standard that we used in exercise physiology class, it looked at the original study for interference and it showed, and the argument was that interference occurred because the training for aerobic was actually so great it caused overtraining. So I think there's a difference between overtraining versus interference. And in some cases, right, we're not obviously going to have the best and most optimal adaptations if we have other stimuli and because it's going to be taxing the body to cause adaptation. But the amount of interference that might be actually there, you know, it might be much different than what we actually assume because we read some of those old studies and we say, oh, you know, they did aerobic, long, slow, steady state, and they didn't, you know, uh, have the strength gains. Well, were they eating more? Were they sleeping more? Were they more psychologically stressed? What else went into it? So it's a great starting point conceptually. Um But looking at some of the context of that, you know, we see in CrossFit different athletes who are doing all these different stimuli at once where they don't have this extreme interference that we assume um, might exist otherwise. And we see football players, basketball players who are athletes that are doing, again, a multitude of different energy systems being taxed and different kind of strength programs being applied. They're not getting, quote unquote, interference to the point where they're degrading. They're not getting worse. They might not be achieving the most optimal adaptation that you would achieve if you were just strictly an Olympic weightlifter and you wanted to get really strong at the clean. So all you did was clean, make sure you sleep enough, eat enough, and be well-rested. Well, obviously, that's not going to be the case because you have different stimuli pulling from the energy systems in the body, energy systems in, reg- in regards to kind of your total adaptive capacity. But I don't think, um, again, i highly opinionated. I don't know, I should say, not think, I don't know if interference really exists to the extent where it's going to cause degradation in a lot of these attributes. And being a former athlete who played, you know, low-level college basketball, I mean, I can kind of have some anecdotal evidence and say, you know, I never, I must have played three hours a day, but it wasn't like I was getting weaker and weaker and weaker unless I didn't take care of my body, right? If you don't take care of your body, you don't sleep enough, eat enough, and take care of yourself mentally, that reduces your adaptive capacity. And the burden you apply to it from these metabolic stressors might add up. You might get some level of overtraining. So moral of the story, right? Is interference what's the topic of it? You know, what is interference? Interference the idea that these two different stimuli cause um, disruption and adaptation, even degradation, which I don't think really occurs unless we're overtraining. I also think we need to take that stuff into context in regards to training itself. What are we doing? We're looking at high level athletes, those athletes probably know how to take care of their body, so when they're in a study looking at Um, long, slow, steady state versus a hit and doing, you know, strength adaptations. They have both strength adaptations and the hit group actually had higher VO2. Well, maybe it's because those athletes don't want to take care of their body, right? They are high level, high performing individuals that maybe when they impose the stress, right? This is... Studies are great, but sometimes studies don't tell the whole story. Maybe they're imposing the stress on the body, and those individuals have the ability to mentally say, okay, I know I'm under greater stress than usual, so I'm going to apply these means and make sure I recover. Again, just speculation, but also just a thought to have whenever we're looking at some of these papers. Um, also, in regards to that program, it's, again, context, context, context. Um, sorry to kind of get off off uh, topic right there because I get kind of wound up about these topics because – talk about this topic you start diving into more and more topics because he's not just talking about what is interference and you know what is you know concurrent training and how does that all play together but then what's some of the theoretical aspects behind it why when you read research why might you read it one way versus another and again don't ever take anything away from research um research is hugely critical it's absolutely important i stand i i mean i totally respect everyone that does it i just think as a reader we need to be educated in our ability to read and synthesize and take evidence from multiple domains outside of just the research, but you know, multiple means of evidence to apply um, synthetically into our uh, own kind of lives and world and what we're using it for. So, thank you guys. Appreciate listening and take care.